Hey, Josh. Hey, Nate. How are you this week? I'm doing pretty good. Life's pretty busy over here. And uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting for a little while. Make uh, might be a little more relaxing. All right. All right. Hope, hope. I hope that works out for you. <laughs> <laughs> How are things with you? Um, pretty good. Yeah, I've had a have a had a really solid week. Got some bigger things done that have been kind of looming. Um, some some employee things like a, a person that's kind of shifting their role. I've like helped define their new role. Um, okay, kind of laid the groundwork for their transition from role one role to another it's really nice to have these i don't know these opportunities where people can level up within the company like they came in at a certain uh position more entry level and they've like worked themselves up and now they're getting uh, an opportunity to do some new things like uh working more with the product team stuff like that so yeah that's really cool that's like uh that's the next level if you you got people that are growing up in your company yeah, it's something we actually put out on our, it's part of our recruiting thing too, right? Like we've talked about hiring and recruiting in the past, but um, but yeah, it's, it's it's really a nice feeling seeing people progress over years mm-hmm. and picking up more responsibility. And, you know, we try to pitch it as a very much an opportunity for growth. And, you know, it truly is. It's, it's proven out to be that in many ways. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so today, um, I know we keep mixing up formats, but I've had this format idea for a while, so I think we're going to give this one a try. Um, this is uh, essentially the whole idea is we're going to be kind of profiling and doing like a business case study, like a, a B2B SaaS case study. Um, we're, we're picking a particular company, uh, and we have a specific format, but we'll kind of let this let this fly and go through and you'll kind of pick up on the format as we go, but we'll try to make it repeatable. Uh, if we do these again, we'll see. Um, but either way, I think it's an opportunity for Nate and I to workshop and research some other companies. I'm often looking at companies for my own inspiration or on own, like looking at markets and trying to figure out what they're doing, right. What they're doing wrong, what, what seven power they had or whatnot that just made them like really awesome. I feel like there's always a few little things that a company can do exceptionally well that can cover up mistakes uh, that really can make a company successful or not. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. This should be fun. Cool. So I'll introduce the first company we're talking about. So the first company is uh, customer.io and uh, why I think they're interesting and why I brought it up as our first one for Nate and I to do research is uh, they've been in the, I guess, recent news a little bit because they just raised a, a crowdfunding round of $5 million, which uh, happens to kind of fall in this new US regulation called RegCF, where you go through an SEC registered broker um, but the big interesting part is that CF stands for, I believe it stands for crowdfunding. So it's where anyone can invest. I mean, um, I could have invested. I, I did not. Um, I don't know if Nate, you did once we saw any of this information. <laughs> Actually, when I just looked at it earlier, they, I think they finished their round. They got, they got all their funding. So yeah, it successfully closed, uh, like a week ago on August 15th. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I thought I thought they're really interesting because of that, and also just one of the things I think we'll get into more in a later segment is the big thing for me was that they're in a space that seemed to be already one that I thought was kind of already one. Um, so yeah, and I think um, Nate, what did you find interesting off the bat? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think kind of like what you said, just interesting that they've managed to survive. Like the marketing space is so crowded and there's already some big players there. Um, I think it's quite something that they've been able to to get to the point where they are. I think uh, I think that's really neat. Right, because they've been around since 2012, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I think that's a good segue into our next segment, which is uh, 
Nate's going to cover some of the basics a bit about sort of as we've done our other uh, research for our own ideas and kind of cover some of those topics, like what's their actual product. So people actually know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you haven't heard of customer.io yet, um, what their market is, things like that. So um, Nate, want to want to take us there? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll lead it, but I'm sure you'll have things to jump in on. I'll try um, not to. <laughs> the, so basically, customer.io, they're kind of targeting the small to medium size um, SaaS companies. And they're kind of going against like ActiveCampaign, um, Drip, Intercom, Braze, those types of companies. So that's kind of the area that um, I kind of see them in. Does that kind of line up with what you're seeing, Josh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's probably, it's it's a wide range. I mean, it depends on how knowledgeable you are on like email marketing or customer communications. Like there's mm. a lot of different slices. And yeah. so it, I suppose who their the general... competition are, right. It's like some people might be like, like the Brazen one. I don't think I know even who Brazen is necessarily. Yeah, it's, uh, but... it's Braze, just Braze. Oh, Braze, sorry. Maybe yeah. I'm thinking they're being brazen. Anyway, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so like if you if you don't know much about email marketing, like you might think of like Mailchimp or um, SendGrid or something like that. Um, you could even call them competitors as well. And so, kind of what they're doing, what Customer.io is doing, is they're getting you to take events from your uh, software application. You send them over to Customer.io, and Customer.io does some um, has a has a way that you can build these really complicated um, email marketing campaigns. So, you know, if somebody signs up for your uh, service, then as part of their sign up, your software will send over to customer.io, hey, we got a new user. And then maybe part of your workflow uh, that you've configured in customer.io is send them, you know, a five email sequence of getting started, something like that. Okay, so like automations, uh, things like that, that where I think when MailChimp first came out, it was all just campaign based, right? And then, yeah. so you're talking about events that are going to trigger maybe a series automation, or you mentioned if they do X or so a lot of, you know, logic you'll often see in things like Zapier or whatnot, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if, if someone goes into the advanced panel in their, in their software as part of the onboarding, then you're like, hey, we should send them some more information about this particular topic and so that would trigger um, a special email sequence for them or that would alter an existing uh, email sequence okay cool i think that makes sense yeah so they kind of have it set up that you can um, directly integrate it into your software or you can use something like segment so like if you have segment uh, or another um, customer metrics uh, software in already integrated then you can pull information it integrates with um, software like that. Um, so it can just pull out uh, your existing events out of those. Okay. So like that's, that's like a, I think the term for segment or the category for software like segment is like CDP, I believe, like customer data platform. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that they can do their own, right? Like you said, events that get processed, but there's also... They could also trigger it based off of like other other customer databases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what was kind of interesting with like looking through what they all do um, is that their positioning in terms of like how they advertise themselves, like on the website, is very much just like we do customer communication. Um, they don't really talk too much about like how in depth their integration goes. That kind of more comes out later as you kind of get deeper and deeper into it. Okay. So you don't see like a, an obvious, or at least the way they're from a marketing standpoint on their homepage, positioning themselves, it, they're positioning themselves pretty generic, right? Like, yeah, okay. yeah, very generic. And it, it's, it definitely doesn't have like a, you know, communication software for developers or it doesn't, it doesn't have that feel to it, even though I'm sure that that's a large part of their audience. Hmm. I wonder what, how they actually position themselves against competitors. Like, I don't think I've, technically dug deep enough to truly understand that. I mean, it's something I think about often, like with our mm. software. Uh, but I also understand that 
on the homepage, you might not necessarily lead with your positioning because sometimes if you have a strong brand, people are going to say, hey, Nate, you should check out customer.io or something like that. And you're like, well, what's customer.io? Or you might see it in the bottom of an email or something like that. But then when mm-hmm. you get there and you see what did it say? You said it said customer communications. Or, mm-hmm. So like then you're like, oh, okay, now I know where to put it even in my in my brain. Like, did I think it was a customer data platform, like a segment? No, no, no. It's for communication. Like it immediately kind of shifted you there. So it is a generalist, but at least it got it to put it somewhere in your brain. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think like maybe the idea with that is like, we're not going to tell you what our position is. We're going to show you what our position is. Like, like show it by showing you the things that make us better uh, as opposed to telling you that our, why we're better. Um, I don't know. It could be. I mean, it could be, it could just be like, maybe it's if they're advertising on a different landing page, a different, you know, they probably just have a lot of being in a broad category. They're oftentimes positioning against different competitors in different ways because they have probably many fronts. Right. So. Yeah. And and one thing that one thing, like I'm sure they've kind of um, figured this out since, but one of the uh, podcasts I was listening to about, uh, where they had Colin, one of the founders on, um, he was kind of saying, we still don't completely know like why people are coming to us over our competitors. And like, I don't know if that's just like, I don't want to talk about it or like, you know, if he truly doesn't know, cause that could be indicative of, you know, why they have that, that, that generic messaging. Yeah. I mean, it could just also be very much, yeah, right. You're, you're right. Like, a word of mouth thing, a branding thing where people enjoy the product enough that they're talking about it and people are just kind of showing up at their, at their doorstep. Um, <laughs> also could be interesting. I'm not sure how much of a sales motion they have. Like mm. everything looks like it's very much product led. Like you can go in there, you can just start it. So you could start it as a developer, as a product person pretty easily off the bat. So I think a lot of the intel one would gain on positioning is like, oftentimes like talking to customers or talking to prospects. Like we mm-hmm. get a lot of Intel understanding why people pick us or why are they're, why they think they're picking us because we, we do a lot of handholding with referral right. rock. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll kind of get into distribution then. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of had a hard time trying to figure this out. Um, so I kind of looked around and kind of from listening to, to Colin talk on that podcast too, um, he kind of mentioned that they had a lot of word of mouth. They did do some paid for a while. They did a lot of paid. Uh, I think now they do just a small amount of paid ads. Um, they kind of had some issues with that where it was, you know, they weren't getting good quality out of it. Um, and then they've been partnering with like with uh, agencies and other industry partners. Okay. Like what about, it, was, it looks like they have a lot of integrations. Do you think like integration mm. marketplaces could have a a plug into what they do? Or it, maybe that's a conflict of interest too, if they're also, it, you know, uh, seen as a competitor for many other platform pieces, because I do feel like they have a that customer data platform piece to it as well. Yeah, I feel like they would get some traffic from that, um, but it definitely wasn't, it didn't feel like, that was a strong, um, a strong entry point into their software. That felt like a more of a second, second thing. I imagine the agencies bit works quite well for them, just because if they are if they're in with a marketing agency that does work for a number of of uh, companies, then it'd be fairly um, a fairly good win for them to just every time they build new software, they they're integrating with customer.io. Um, and they have a good relationship that way. Yeah, is that so? You said that's something he mentioned in the in the podcast episode, like about yeah. agencies. Yeah, and I'll, I'll link to that podcast. It's from uh, Ben Johnson on Scale or Die, I believe it's called. So I'll okay. put that in the show notes. That one's interesting. I never really, I, I didn't hear much about that in my research in terms of them working with agencies. But yeah, I know agencies can be a very strong, like. Uh, point of integration sort sort of like you know let's say you have a developer building your app 
and they just kind of, that's their default. They just kind of plug that in as part of their routine and their stack that they end up mm-hmm. like handing over to clients and they're like, oh, okay, I guess this is what we're using. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's like kind of like the whole Heroku sort of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Same kind of idea. Okay. Uh, anything else on distribution? No, that's it for me. Okay. So moving on to story, kind of a little bit more into how they got started, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, kind of our first point under here is funding, um, which is kind of the reason that they came up on our radar, I guess, because of the most recent round. Um, so they've raised a couple rounds. Most of them, they, it's been very small. Um, they did 250,000, 150,000, 1.5 million, almost a, almost uh, 500,000, 2.9 million, and then the, the 5 million that they just finished like a week ago. And like what I thought was really interesting with this is they don't seem to be raising a ton of money, especially compared to other software startups. I don't know. What, what did you think of that? Well, they do come from sort of a more fun-strapped, bootstrapping roots. Um, mm-hmm. So, which I, I do think kind of tracking back to like how they get distribution and maybe why they... I feel like they've just been in the game long enough to be known, right? Just the fact that they're around <laughs> mm. uh, since 2012, right? Like they're doing this uh, a little more dev focused product piece. Um, back in then, you know, it didn't seem like that was probably as much of like a market then. But then I think they were just early on. So they were just there when people started looking for the type of solution and, like that's not the thing pe- that are, is particularly highly investable, right? Like in terms of let's let's throw a bunch of money at this and let's go try to own this market. So um, I do think it's interesting. So I think they do kind of uh, what would the be like slide more towards like a more cost effective um, bootstrap types of routes. So that would probably be my reasoning. They've kept that. Also, even over the past year even before they just raised this round um you know they've been like they've been profitable or relatively Mm -hmm. close to profit for a pretty long time i think so i think they've always kind of taken almost like a mentality that i think about like my business as which is it's like okay i i'm keeping a lot of options open and i think they've seen a large amount of accelerated growth lately which has kind of kicked into why they are now like, well, the getting's kind of good now. It's easier to raise money. Um, we look like we have a lot of momentum and we have a story and maybe we do want to kind of not lose our place in this market and actually, you know, push ourselves. And that's the reason for the raise, but they also wanted to do it in a way that they probably weren't totally selling their souls. Because if you look at their valuation, um, so they raised 5 million on a, I believe it was a $200 million yeah, cap. Like that. Um, yeah. It's all on a safe note. If you know about those types of things, we won't, we don't have to go too far into that, but yeah. So it is, it is their first like bigger round, but then it's not like a, Hey, they weren't looking to sell a traditional VC round, which is like sell 20%. So even at the two, 200 million, you know, type of thing that would be raising 40 million. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're not going VC or bust type of thing. So that that's probably the reasoning they're not, they didn't raise a ton like you were thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if like, yeah, maybe, maybe they just, you know, they want to keep the control and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Or wonder like, are they maybe like, because they aren't as sales focused um, of an organization that maybe they don't have, they don't see something where they could just pour money into and see results from right away uh, just because of the structure of their company. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like, like I know coming from that mentality, it's hard to get yourself to just set money on fire or to just say, I'm going to, Oh yeah, I'm willing to spend like $2 million just to see if X could work. So from an efficiency minded standpoint, it's hard to think in that mode of like, 
you know, when you have a ton of money and how can I buy a market or how can I go like own a segment and just lambast it with ads or like, do I have some secret product or some, some I'm, I'm growing so fast that like, I can't keep up with enough engineers. Um, so I don't know. I, I wonder what they, what I, I do wonder what they are raising it for. Cause that's a typical thing is like, why are you, why are you raising? Which I don't think things like the, um, the crowdfunding platforms really address. It's kind of almost like, Hey, we're growing kind of join us for the ride, so to speak, unless, unless yeah. you saw something different. I feel like the, the, the crowdfunding is more like an awareness campaign, if anything. Cause like, yeah, you're getting all these people's money and I guess on, on some level it's useful because there's so many small investors that you probably don't have to answer too loudly to any one of them. Um, but then there's also just like people know about you because you're raising a round, right? And they know about you because, well, so-and-so put money in and they want to talk about it. I don't know. I don't know if it's as much like for publicity. I think it's probably more... For me, I think it aligns more with with their ethos, right? Like of this isn't VC, we're still kind of a, you know, bootstrap indie uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I think they actually gave the opportunity where what's interesting is like you can have your customers can invest. <laughs> so it can literally be anyone. And um, like I don't. I don't think it's necessary for the publicity. I think it's the fact that they did want to raise, but then they didn't kind of the point you made, like they didn't want to necessarily bring on someone, bring on some heavy that's going to push them in a certain direction. Um, So just what's interesting nowadays is that these are all much more viable options versus, you know, five, five, 10 years ago. So, yeah. yeah. Did you have anything else on funding? Uh, no, not really. I mean, we, we don't have to cover every, I know I have a a list of a couple topics under story that we've done, but we don't have to cover everything on there. They're just, uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll kind of run through the the rest of them here kind of in together, lump them together. Um, so the, the inception story for them, um, basically it was two guys working at a startup, uh, Colin and John. Uh, Colin's the business guy, John's the tech. Um, and basically they saw a tweet uh, about um, retention as a service. And they thought, huh, that's kind of neat. And I believe they were working at an agency at the time, uh, or maybe it was Moz. And uh, they thought, well, that's kind of neat. We should do something with that. They're Canadian, aren't they? Or one of them is or something? Aren't they? Re- I didn't get that. Okay. Um, so they kind of just continued to, they, they kind of started talking to people on forums and on Twitter. Um, they started talking about like emailing your customers and kind of communications, uh, hints for, for businesses. So like, you know, Hey, you should send an email to your customers every week or every month, you know, even though you might not feel like you want to, and here's some, some ways you can go about that. And they kind of use that to sort of build up some momentum and get a bunch of email addresses and that sort of thing. So I thought that was pretty neat. Like just starting on forums and Twitter, it's like, yeah, okay, I, I can, I can see that. That's cool. The little, the little sales safari type of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then they did like a private beta in April of 2012. They got five companies uh, paying ten dollars a month for that, and that was kind of they had that, and then they opened it up to a public beta, and then after that, they kind of launched off from there. And like one of the, one of the quotes that kind of stuck with me from that early time there was that they were talking about talking to people on Twitter and stuff. And they said, people like really have their guard up. Um, anytime they have a conversation that they think is going to lead to a sale at the end. If I was starting a company from scratch again, I'd start talking to people, even if I had nothing to sell. I thought that was really neat. Like I've really noticed that. I don't know what's that your just people have their, that they people have their guard up and stuff like that. So you should just just start talking, but not even. I guess the idea is like in general, you want to talk to people about your idea, but you you can almost like it's a better idea to just not even think about 
like the value you're getting is a sale. So it doesn't even remotely come across like that. Like, hey, I'm just gathering information. And if you think this is interesting, that's great. Um, but aside from that, I'm not here to sell you. I just, you know, want to talk and, and understand the problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just just like hang out as two people and, you know, try to help people as much as possible. I think that really comes from like a, um, I don't know, I've experienced this in my work as well. It's just like anytime you try to sell somebody on something, it just doesn't go well for me. It's like you're, I'm much better off just talking to people about the problem that they want to talk about and trying to help them as opposed to trying to sell them on anything. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I can agree with that. I know I'm a just just personally like, yeah, if I get an email that's leading with selling, obviously, I just mm-hmm. kind of just immediately don't think of it. But obviously, if someone like tapped me on the street and just said, hey, Josh, um, I want to hear about SaaS, you know, they probably wouldn't be able to get away from me for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just talk their ear off. So it'd be like, if you're asking for advice or yeah. asking for information or want to know about them or something they're interested in, like, mm-hmm. like, uh, the floodgates will open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that's kind of what I had for the story bit. Um, to, did you have anything else that uh, you wanted to add to that part? No. Not really. I think that, um, no, I think that sums up kind of a nice, just little story about how they got started and things like that. And, um, so the next segment I did want to move on to is talking about essentially what else you found as, I guess for both of us, what we found as the most interesting things about, Mm. about customer.io. Um, cause you know, I, see things with a certain lens and kind of dig deep in certain areas. And um, hopefully we don't pick the same thing, but honestly, if we do, that's okay. Um, I think the idea is for us to bring, you know, one or two things to the table that we did want to talk about. So um, do you want to go first or do you want me to? I've just been talking for a while. So why don't you go first? All right. You can drink a sip of water. (laughs) Uh, so the first one I had, which is kind of talking similar to what I mentioned in the intro was, I thought initially that this was a space that was already one. Um, you know, we talked earlier about MailChimp and email marketing and things like that, but why this was really interesting to me is as much as they're saying this customer communication platform and things like that. Um, This largely becomes a case for me of like this bundling versus unbundling argument. And, you know, you can look at all of these other markets that arguably could be the same thing. And I look at them that have these three main components in this customer communication piece. So there is like that internal database that we're talking about, like the, the mm-hmm. CDP, the customer data platform, storing data, storing properties, storing, you know, it's like a CRM object model where it has like contacts and companies and things like that. Um, and then you add the, you add the logic and the, the, all the automation stuff you brought up. Um, and then, and then you add the like actual communication medium, which I think we keep saying email, but I do believe they do other things. I think they also do SMS. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they also do browser notifications. Uh, they might have a mobile SDK for mobile F- notifications. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, they they have those other ones, but I think they a lot of their messaging talks about email because email is kind of the way that most of us talk about customer communication, but they definitely do the other ones as well. Right, so... What's interesting is when you look at it from that lens, that it's like, okay, are they competing with other ones that are full stack bundle pieces? Like, I know HubSpot's a big one that's talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in my mind, honestly, Intercom seems to be the most interconnected with this one. But obviously, Intercom is kind of made famous more with their little chat widget and things like that. 
But if you look inside their stuff, I mean, they have the same customer data platform pieces. Uh, for us, we use them a ton for the messaging aspect, like because they're hooked up to our, uh, you know, sessions with a with a user, and it could be chatted with. But we also have, you know, like drip messages and onboarding messages that all get triggered based off of those events. And again, we're sending events in into intercom. We're doing all those same sort of automation. So in my mind, they're very much competing with those. And what what makes it really interesting is thinking about how many of these they are very similar, but just, yeah, I don't know if it's a positioning nuance. Um, you also could say Drift, right? Like Drift was a competitor or is a competitor to Intercom. Yeah. But they're a little outside the product. They're more like pushed up the sales and marketing stack, which then also is more aligned with what, HubSpot does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're right about the bundling versus unbundling thing. Like, um, I think kind of to their advantage is you know we just we just do the messaging and you know we're really good at that. And you know if you go with HubSpot, you're going to get the giant and you're going to have to pay big fees and you're going to have to deal with you know enterprise level stuff. Um, whereas you deal with us, where you know we're going to solve your problems a lot faster or something like that. Well, I think it comes from an older school thing. Like HubSpot came from like where you pay for HubSpot now is out of, um, is for all the messaging, but it's done in a traditional way that is more like MailChimp. Um, Mm. And which is interesting because they were a big MailChimp competitor in, in a certain area of HubSpot, but it's actually not very expensive. So I know, I, I, I like HubSpot. We use it a lot. We actually don't particularly pay very much for it, it for its use case. Um, but we also use Intercom. Like I said, Intercom for us is the one that does the product messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, Intercom, I mean, MailChimp, sorry. <laughs> HubSpot handles all of the, uh, like, we use it for their CRM mostly. And it's, yeah. it is our customer data platform, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get into... I do I do believe that customer.io is more of a a bundle because of because of their strong internal CDP and you mentioned use of segment and that's probably more of like an integration like oh if you're already using segment you could just use us just for the messaging yeah um but if you're not using segment like we essentially compete with segment but also have all of the the uh, the messaging endpoints and can do all that logic and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I wonder if maybe kind of their use case is more um, just like somebody who's frustrated with how their messaging is going and they want to do something really complicated. Then it's like, oh, customer.io is like the perfect solution for you because, you know, they um, they have all these really complex workflows and you just integrate, you know, a segment or you could put all your hooks in over here. Um, and I think there is there doesn't seem to be another competitor that seems to offer that. I don't know, honestly, I don't know. I I mean, it sounds like we're both speculating a little bit about what how they do. So I'd rather mm-hmm. not. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, just be, I, and and mostly stick to the model of what we understand. Like I don't I mm-hmm. don't know really. I I'm not a user. Um, I can say what Intercom does. We can say what they look like from them. I don't know if you've used customer.io or have no. any more specific experience. Um, but just, I, I would be careful for us to not put words in the mouths of what they do. And then we send off some user to go check this out. And it's like, oh, wait, actually they don't do that. That was their worst feature. They don't do that as well. Yeah. So, um, But just, but like looking at their marketing material, like when you look at customer.io's marketing material, they really focus on like, sure. The first thing is, yeah, we do email marketing. But then right away, it's like, and we do, we integrate like this and you can hook this in, you get your developer to do this. Um, Whereas I think a lot of the other platforms are not so much about that, at least the ones that I've seen. Okay. I I get by that. So I think it is, it is, it does look to me that they're very strongly developer focused. Yeah. Right. Like the same way, you know, something like Twilio Mm -hmm. uh, and even SendGrid, which I do want to bring it to the conversation as well. Um, it, you know, those were very developer focused 
first, right? It's like mm-hmm. developers use them because they had great APIs and they kind of got in with that community, those communities. So it was re- really easy to add those, but I don't think SendGrid has, SendGrid never had a central database. So they couldn't do events. They couldn't do automations. It was essentially, you would have to build that piece yourself. Yeah, I think uh, in recent years they've added that, but originally they didn't. Well, what's interestingly enough is like Twilio, Segment, and SendGrid are all the same company now, right? Like, so Twilio bought all of those, which to me is interesting because they essentially, we talked about having the data platform and having the automations and events, which Mm -hmm. is Segment, having a messaging endpoint for email, which is SendGrid, and Twilio, which is SMS. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. You know, they are a large, probably, competitor of customer.io, but just as one big conglomerate and probably just mm-hmm. go deeper in those as like closer to the closer to the wired dev tools. Um, but yeah, it's interesting but- because that's that that's painting that same picture of all 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 of those together with two different message deliveries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think where, where customer.io is kind of special is they do a lot of the advanced workflow part of it, right? And none of the Twilio group of companies really does that. They do, do the transport, basically. Okay, yeah, that, that's probably know, thought... true. So, like, so you're right. So that's that's a piece they're missing, right? So they're dependent on the, the developer to kind of handle that middle piece. Like Segment may store the data, but it's not doing the automations or... SendGrid's automations are lighter, a lot lighter weight than necessarily. You might have to build that into your own product from a dev standpoint versus just like, mm-hmm. I want to send off this message and I want to trigger off this like five-day campaign. Yeah. What I could see though is like sometime in the future, you know, Twilio goes and tries to buy customer.io just to, you know, complete their whole circle there. Mm-hmm. Kind of go up the food chain. I wonder though, I wonder from an acquisition standpoint if one, if it moves the needle for them, because we're talking when we talk about scope, size and scope, like customer.io is a you know, they're a they're a twenty million dollar a year ARR company. Right. And Twilio and Sengrid and all of these, I mean, they're I don't know, at this Huge. point a multi multi billion dollar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it you know, for them it's probably more of a, a pain point of like, is it easier for us to just build that layer or buy someone else that is purely just an automation layer in between? And and maybe they're looking for it. They seem to be acquiring, you know, other mm-hmm. other companies in the space yeah. for that. So I don't know. Makes me think about that. Like whenever, you know, I think about acquisitions, I'm like, how much of that is waste? How much of that is overlap? How much of that is buying a brand and a name or buying a distribution channel? Like, what are they actually buying? And if it's for the tech, like how much of it is complementary versus like overlap? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, One other interesting one to kind of bring into the scope of this is, have you heard of a Clavio? Mm -hmm. So Clavio is interesting too, but they do a lot of this same thing. If anything, they are a big competitor of them, but just for e-commerce. Oh, okay. So cool. not thinking SaaS, not thinking product integrations, but thinking e-commerce. Um, which interestingly enough, I heard a podcast about Clavio and the founders, and their initial, uh, their initial like goal was to just create this CDP type of thing, this database with an API that allowed businesses to run queries against their customers. And so it started very much as a strong customer data platform. And I think what they realized is they started seeing people just hook up email and things like that over the way, uh, over the, over time. And eventually they just started doing that themselves. And that's when they kind of took off. So they might've started on the CDP piece of it, then started adding messaging. And I think they also have the gambit of SMS uh, email, right. all the automations, but then it's probably more strictly templated towards Shopify and e-commerce. Like if you look at their things, it's all about integrations with big commerce, mm-hmm. Shopify, you know, WooCommerce, all of the big e-commerce platforms. Yeah. 
that that would probably be really interesting for customer.io to kind of look at clavicle or clavio you said it was clavio clavio and like compare what they're doing just because i feel like there's such a big chasm between e-commerce and other SaaS. like for them to jump over would be very difficult uh, even though the tech is very similar but it'd be interesting to see like kind of what the feature overlap is and that sort of thing yeah they probably could use a lot of inspiration from each other wondering yeah. how um or if they're dev focused like what are, what are the what are the things that i would think something like a clavia would have to have more boilerplate templates more stuff that is like hey just click here and set up this sequence where mm. um where a customer.io might be a little more like you know Impressive. diy um aspect because mm -hmm. devs are going to want to control it themselves <laughs> yeah yeah, for sure. Cool. So, um, yeah, do you want to go on to a, an interesting topic for you? Yeah, um, the kind of I kind of have one, which is um, just the deep integration that they're doing. I was really surprised by that, um, and like I think it's kind of neat too. Like the way that it surprises me is um, I'm just surprised that they've gotten people to do it. You know, like there's a big there's a big investment that um the 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 company needs to make in order to actually integrate properly with customer.io using the dev integration um and i feel like that'd be really tough like especially in the early days to get people on board with that um like i can really see the benefit of it in terms of like yeah you get the developers to hook up custom events so that the marketing people can have you know that fine-grained um event data um but I'm just yeah surprised that they they managed to succeed with that. What makes you surprised as a dev? Like it's just just the hurdle, or what would you, what would you do otherwise? Well, I just think that like the I guess otherwise you'd probably be sending emails manually, which is you know a whole kettle of fish, I guess. Um, but just like if I think of the as a dev, what um, third party services I integrate with. They usually have to be pretty big before I'm willing to spend the effort to figure out their API and send over their events and all that stuff. Um, and even as a manager too, just like the the can of worms that you're opening by starting down that path, um, I'm I'm surprised that it wasn't more of a, a hurdle for them to get started. Interesting, because I, I <laughs> it's interesting that you take. I mean, because basically you're taking it much more from a developer position of like, mm. why would I integrate why, like a build versus buy kind of discussion? It's like, why would I, it's a lot, it's almost just as much effort for me to do this versus like coding against Amazon SES or something like that. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm not even thinking that so much. I'm just thinking like people, their marketing departments are already sending emails somehow. Um, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're triggering that off of like, you know, Google tag manager events or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, or like some, some, something that's easier to configure because typically the, the way that I've experienced it is that if the marketing department wants something, they try to keep it within the marketing department. They try not to get dev resources involved. So if there's a way for them to do it without getting developers to write code, um, that's usually a win. Well, I don't think they're competing with marketing. So I don't think these are marketing emails that are going out. I think most of this is product types of emails. So it's like it's like the onboarding emails. It's like the uh, trigger-based emails of, of like interacting with the product. It's like, oh, hey, mm -hmm. you churned type of thing. It's not, it's stuff that is much more tied to the heartbeat of what is going on in the product, hence mm -hmm. the events and all of those types of things. Um, so when you know you're in deep with those sort of product things, um, I don't think you're competing with like a MailChimp or what, how I'm thinking you might be projecting what would be in a MailChimp newsletter. Because again, for the same example, like we, we use MailChimp um, mm -hmm. for marketing emails. We use Intercom for product emails. <laughs> so we actually have a lot and we use HubSpot for sales emails. Like, so we have it's not about the medium and being a, I'm going to pick one email vendor. Mm -hmm. um, but 
but it's more about aligning with the job role and the job to be done. So this is the job to be done of the product manager, or maybe it's the product marketing manager, mm-hmm. where it is not the marketing side, it is very much close tied to the product. And maybe in the evolution of the company there, this is a later evolution. It's not the first thing. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, why, why am I going to, as a marketing person, going to wait for them to code up this so I can contact all the customers? It's more of like, hey, you starting this up, you're going to set up a landing page. It's going to send into your database. And then, oh, I want to send out a marketing thing. Like, I'm just going to export it as a CSV, dump it into MailChimp, free account, and just go email blast, you know, my, the the people, right? Like you're not going to go and hook up customer.io just to send a, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So I don't, that's yeah. how I look at it. Hmm. I guess like, is there, um, is there a competitor that um, has like a segment type that kind of does the segment route route better where they are doing like segment is already collecting analytics from the, the software, um, you know, just integrate with that system. Do, do you know sure of any, do you, do you know of any competitors to customer.io that are more along those lines? That are taking the events and using, doing product messaging and that type of piece that are more doing the like integrate with the customer data platform as opposed to doing a direct integration with the software. Um, like, so basically you're saying what customer.io does, like who would be a direct. Right. I'm just thinking if there's a direct competitor who really focuses on integration instead of like developer time, I feel like that, that would probably win just because you can get, you get two things for the price of one. Right. I mean, I think that that one is probably SendGrid, <laughs> right? Like the, the segment, well, I mean, tracking back, I think that segments purpose initially was not necessarily to be a CDP themselves, I believe. I think a lot of theirs is about routing. So it is more about like, hey, put it in here and we will we'll be the central store for all the customer data and events. And then we'll route it and dump it into like other analytics platforms. We'll send it to Intercom. We'll send it to SendGrid. We'll send it to like, we'll be that central repository as a routing mechanism. So you only have to integrate with one point there. So that's where customer.io could plug into Segment. So if they were already using Segment, you could add customer.io into the mix. Yeah. 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 So I guess with the whole integration thing that kind of got me thinking of like the seven powers, the one um, that's kind of one of the defensible things is if you have a deep integration, then it's the, the switching cost of uh, anybody switching to another vendor um, would be significant. And so that'd be yeah. a nice moat. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think the fact that it takes a lot of dev muscle to, integrate these pieces in they just they do have a have a very large sustainable moat um which is maybe we'll move on to our last segment which mm-hmm. is probably like i have two questions and i think we'll go over both of us like why do we think they can win like what are their core advantages and why do we think they would i would, wouldn't even say lose but maybe slow right like at this mm-hmm. point i think with a lot of these SaaS companies they're not necessarily going to get eaten for lunch, they just may not get as much of the pie as they were hoping. Mm-hmm. So um, I think you a great one to start with is what you mentioned in and I mentioned, I, I'm just calling this one lock in. So they're hard to rip out, right? Like whether it's for the dev muscle that it took to integrate them in, um, whether it's the uh, all the integrations they're already working with, right? Um, and, and it's your main line of communicating with your customer. Like once you have a business up and running, that's not the stuff you want to touch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, you have your machine and your funnels and your, your messaging, right messaging at the right time stuff going. So like, that's a pretty strong lock-in mechanism. Yeah, totally. I agree. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so why, why else do you think they could win? I think another reason is just that like people are, I think, from my perspective, it seems like more people are starting to take notice of them. 
Um, and so that's like winner's win kind of thing where um, once they become more well-known, then they get more customers and that causes a nice happy cycle for them. Right. So they have a brand, they have some word of mouth. It has just like, Hey, I've heard of them. Like, okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's some familiarity. And I go and look at their website and, Oh, they have all these integrations with the things I'm using. Like that seems like a good, like, like hitch to, to pull my wagon from, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And I think I like another thing kind of related to that is that, um, or maybe more related to the integrations is that as their customers grow, um, they're going to grow too, right? So like if, if Josh, like if Josh has them integrated in his software and, uh, you know, your business grows by, you know, it doubles while all of a sudden you're paying them probably double too. So that's a nice way for them to grow and stay connected. Yeah. You brought up a great, a good point that I did want to bring up as well, which I think they do kind of fall into a nice gap in the market. Like you asked me who else is doing this. And, you know, my first thought of like, who's the really the closest competitor only because this would be my alternative to what we're already using, which is intercom. Uh, the interesting thing about that is from a pure volume standpoint, like, they're actually, their pricing is really good. Like you look at their, they have two pricing plans, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also a metered component, which is a major component, which is also very interesting because you look at intercom and I think the biggest complaint about intercom is it gets expensive. It gets expensive very fast, the more people you have on it. So for yeah. someone like using intercom for mobile, like where you have a mobile app user, that is not worth as much as like uh, a $500 a month SaaS user or something like that. Right. Uh, that, that, that pricing model can quickly get you upside down and the value is not very well aligned. And it looks mm -hmm. like they've hit a nice medium where like their, I think their base plan is $150 and it's up to 12,000 profiles. Is that how they, they yeah. price it? Yeah. Um, and then they have this enterprise plan that's like $1,000 a month. And I think that's really where, oh, you want more than 12000 You have to jump onto that one. And then after that, it's probably other stronger metered pricing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they have a leg up on who I would consider the biggest competitor, which is like an intercom type of thing. Um, now, obviously, intercom has different positioning. It's targeting a different market. It also covers like help and customer support and chat, which... It looks like they haven't ventured into, which I think is actually a good thing. It doesn't necessarily muddy the waters too much, but I could be wrong. Maybe they do have that, and they want to want to throw their throw their uh, hat into that ring. But um, that's where I think they kind of have a nice things. Uh, you know, so we mentioned the lock in. We mentioned kind of having a mini brand, um, and I I do. You know, we had trouble finding who we felt like was really a a direct competitor. Uh, Aside potentially from our friends, uh, our friends uh, Benedict and Jane at UserList, which I mean, I, I don't, I'd, I'd love to hear what they have to say, but they're kind of you know up and coming in terms of like trying to be for SaaS platforms, trying to do the 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 product messaging and those things, and they've added a couple of these other pieces, and I know they've recently added like a a company object in addition to their user objects, which is starting to get into the CDP territory. And I do believe they have events and all of these other things. So maybe they're the, 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 the 2000, you know, I think they started, what did we say? 2018? Yeah. Something like that it was about three years ago, I think. Right. So what often happens in these markets, and maybe this is getting into my other piece of why they could slow is mm. like, a lot of these types of markets, a, a newer stack or a fresher uh, like way to look at kind of these these solutions starts to win because it just gets harder to move as you get bigger, right? Like, yeah, HubSpot CRM is awesome because it was fairly new and fresh. Uh, even though HubSpot's an older company, they only dipped their toe into CRM way late versus something like Salesforce. You look at those two interfaces, it's like night and day oh, from yeah. a modern perspective. Um, so, 
you know, maybe it's something userless could do to, to, to nip at their feet or start to kind of grow from a, like a more modern or a simpler UI. Cause any of these things kind of get, get more complex. So, mm-hmm. um, did you have any others to add to the, why the win? No, that's all I had for wins. Okay. So why they would slow. So I already brought up one about, you know, someone else could, uh, kind of nip at their heels per se. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have anything else, anything on uh, why, why they would slow? Um, so kind of what I talked about earlier, I feel like someone could come come along and make it easier to integrate. Um, like some some better way to integrate, like either through a customer data platform or something like that. And um, yeah, just make it so easy that people would kind of gravitate towards that. Like someone like a user list? <laughs> someone like a user list. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I think like any time that you make the onboarding easier, um, you're gonna you're gonna take up market share as long as you're competitive on the other things. Um, so I'd see that as kind of a, a thing to worry about. And the other thing I kind of worried about too with their just looking at how they're doing their funding, um, they because they aren't raising as much money. I wonder if there are, um, yeah, places that a bigger a bigger player or someone with more funding could kind of take them over. You know, if they, um, maybe they're not allocating as much engineering resources or as much marketing resources as, as they maybe should. And then someone else sees that and says, huh, I'm going to, you know, I'll beat you at it. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that too. I kind of raised that as one, which is, you know, they, they raised as a pretty high, relatively high valuation cap, which was, I think I said 200 million Mm-hmm. for like the 20 million they are so they have a it's a 10x multiple on their revenue which i mean given today's market i guess it's not as high as maybe it was a few years ago or even a year ago um but they they do have a lot to live up to and maybe like you said maybe they've drummed up a good amount of pr and kind of put a target on their back <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of they 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 got some pr they put a target on their back but they didn't raise that much in their war chest, right? So like, it's one thing to get a big PR splash and be like, hey, we're coming for you. And now we've got a $50 million war chest. Like, oh, okay, that's who we're going to be battling against. Where, hey, we raised this thing, and but we have this $5 million war chest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, It's not as scary, but they've kind of, you know, shaken the trees a bit. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I wonder maybe related to that too, is like um, they don't really seem to have a strong like founding story or founding reason or like, like they have a reason for existence, but um, it doesn't feel like a company that has like this ethos to it, um, at least from when I was doing my research. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that often small companies can be protected by that. Like, you know, if I, if you have a really good story that can go a long way to kind of getting your, your brand uh, known and top of mind for people. That's true. I mean, the only thing is they may just may not have been able, have not have crafted a good story yet. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like yeah. half of these are, you don't know the story until you hear it. And maybe in a year, they're going to have this really compelling one. Although we might step back and be like, well, we knew your story before you had that public story. So <laughs> yeah. um, that's a good point. I like that one. Um, one of the ones I, I added to my notes actually since you started was there you said that there was no clear distribution channel, which actually mm-hmm. I found really interesting. And that would be another reason why I think they could slow possibly is like you do look at intercom and I feel like everyone knows intercom and mm-hmm. and and knows what their story is and knows what they're good for and things like that. And you know, you you do the research on any of these and you see SEO footprints, you see where certain companies are strong. And I, you know, if you didn't find one, I didn't really do enough research on a clear distribution channel. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of a hard, hard place to be to just say, we're just going to keep making the product better and we're going to get, you know, some word of mouth. But if they don't have a quite a strong story yet, that is really cutting through the noise in a position um, and, they don't have a clear distribution, which even for something like HubSpot, like, you know, they're, 
they're an SEO monster, right? You look at all the traffic they get. Um, and even in the recent acquisition, HubSpot bought The Hustle. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. So like The Hustle, which is a was that newsletter that has tons of reach to entrepreneurs. So it's like they just tapped into the next generation of entrepreneurs and they're all going to be very brand aware on, on HubSpot. So it's like HubSpot's doubling down on on their distribution. And so, you know, what is, what is customer.io, you know, where, where can they kind of continue to hammer a playbook, right? Like, even if you said Colin seemed to be like, at least the interview you heard, he wasn't sure why people were coming and choosing them. It's, it's almost a little scary, right? I'd be like, well, where, then where do you want to go next? So, I mean, it could be a dated interview. I don't know when it was, it was recorded. Yeah, it was 20, 2019. Okay. So he's had some time since then, but uh, I think any time that you have a uh, uh, someone in leadership that's kind of like not too sure about a major component, that that has me worried. But I'm sure you can uh, solve that problem too. Yeah, I can relate because there's tons of times I sound like I have no idea what I'm doing, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cool. Yeah. So I think I think those are those are good ones. Oh, I did have one more to add, uh, which kind of relates to their pricing model, and then also mm-hmm. relates to the other competitors. Before we wrap up, which is, you know, we'd mentioned kind of some of the bigger ones out there from an enterprise utility standpoint: the Twilio, the Segment, the SendGrid, um, also uh, SparkPost, which is like a SendGrid competitor, and and um, you know, we use SparkPost as our backend transactional email. So, from an email delivery standpoint, what's interesting is SparkPost just got bought by MessageBird, which is a a messaging and WhatsApp platform, but it's big in every country except for the U.S. So, sort of like imagine Twilio, but with like WhatsApp messaging and all these other messaging and notifications. Now that stack is missing a CDP. <laughs> so yeah. who knows, maybe a uh, customer.io could fit into their, their little, uh, their little rounding out. But going back to my point of why I think that they could slow is once you get into enterprise, it gets hard. Like, th- and that's where a lot of their growth is. If you look at, at the past year, you know, they grew seven customer.io grew 70% like in the past year. And from what it looked like in some of the reports and data, a lot of that was from the expansion of the more enterprise-y types of customers. Um, because they scaled their pricing and they have this like meter-based pricing, which is great, but at what point do they get like outflanked by the enterprise, right? They're starting to encroach into these bigger dollar territories. And what if they can't keep up, right? Like what if people are like, I need to graduate out of customer.io and move on to a segment plus plus yeah. uh, Twilio plus uh, SendGrid type of platform. And so that's the other one. I don't know where, you know, that's where a lot of their growth are is coming from. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder if they're going to get like cut off by the knees as they get into this bigger war territory. So, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with like, how well are they going to learn these new, these new markets and whatnot? Because, like they, I feel like they're going to have some leeway in learning the enterprise space just because it's going to take some pain for these companies to switch off of customer.io. And so there's probably going to be a few conversations going back and forth before that happens. Um, and maybe if they lose one or two, they can at least, you know, do some learnings from those and, um, and be able to retain, you know, future ones. Right. Right. But yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. I think that's a wrap. I hope uh, hope this was interesting for our listeners. Um, I kind of had a lot of fun. I'm I'm probably looking into these business models and meter pricing and all these other things for my own selfish uh, business modeling reasons. But um, Nate, do you enjoy this? Yeah, this is fun. This is um, a little different than I'm used to, but I think this is uh, this is cool. Cool. All right. Well. We'll see you guys later. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share with a friend. We're new to this podcasting thing, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. 
tweet us at searching for SAS on Twitter. That's searching the number four SAS. Or send an email to searchingforsass at gmail.com. See you next week. Thank you.